Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need, when you need it, with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignan, and I'm joined, as always, by my intrepid co-host, Rodney Evans. (laughs) Hello, everyone. We are also joined today by Michele Zanini, the co-founder of Management Lab and the co-author of a new book with Gary Hamill called Humanocracy that we are very big fans of. Michele, welcome to the show. Thank you, Aaron, and thank you, Rodney. I'm so delighted to be here. On today's episode, we are going to talk about the book and your work. But before we crack into that tome, we should check in because we We, always check in. We do. We will today, like all the other days. So we begin every episode of this podcast with a check-in question, whether that's just the two of us or we have an illustrious guest as we do today. So our check-in question for today is going to be this one. What is the best reward that anyone can give you? Aaron, I will start with you and I will go next and then we'll uh, ask Michele to finish it off. Okay. I think just given my Enneagram type, the answer to this is probably admiration. Mm. I like to be looked up to. Sometimes that leads me down the wrong path, but I would say, yeah, I really appreciate when someone's like, you're doing great. I'm I'm inspired yeah. by what you're doing. That really right. speaks to me. Cool. What about you? For me, it is full support and time. So when <laughs> someone is like, In any context, personally, professionally, wherever in my life, when someone is like, don't worry about that thing, you don't have to think about it again, I will take care of it so you can Uh, have this time back, I'm like, oh my God, there's nothing better for me as a person who is not great at asking for help always to have someone else basically force me to take their help and support and give myself a break. The bulldozer. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, Michele, what about you? What's the best reward someone can give you? So maybe it's because I've become indoctrinated by my wife, but I think that being stretched and challenged so I can actually improve, Mm. even though it sounds a little painful, (laughs) is probably the best reward because it means not only that I improve, but that the person who's stretching me feels I can and it's worth helping me improve. Maybe a little masochistic, but but at least that's what I've been told. All right, I wish so then I, yeah. Our plan for the episode today is when it's over, you all will tell me how great I did. Rodney, I got this. I'll cover the questions. And Michele, we're going to give you some tough ones. <laughs> we'll yeah. all get what we want just from this one <laughs> podcast episode. All right. So for real, today's topic is predominantly this concept and this book of humanocracy. And so I guess we wanted to start by just asking you, what does that mean? Because that's a new that's a new word, a new portmanteau. It is. We were searching for uh, a word that encapsulates what we think needs to be an alternative to 
the traditional operating system that runs most organizations, which you know is bureaucracy, and we can get into what that means. But um, the three kind of terms I would use to summarize it super succinctly would be resilient organizations, organizations that are as nimble as change itself, good jobs where people are able to fulfill and apply their talents to the fullest potential and 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 zero bureaucracy where mm-hmm. you know performance is generated through ways that are different from the traditional rule choked top down mechanisms that characterize most organizations today so that would be the headline but in a way the other way to think about this is the role that the organization plays versus the individual so in a bureaucracy the human beings are the instruments right there are the mm-hmm. resources that are employed by the, the organization resources. to create yeah, there are the resource, human resources, right? <laughs> Employed by an organization to create products and services. In what we call a humanocracy, the script is flipped, right? So it's the organization that is, that is the instrument. It's the vehicle that human beings use to better their lives and the lives of others. The question at the core of bureaucracy is how do we get human beings to better serve the organization? And at the question at the heart of humanocracy is what sort of organization uh, in a way elicits and merits the best that we can give? So that's the the pretty different perspective, I think. That as the core notion makes so much sense. And I loved the book and and was fortunate to hear Gary talk about it before it was released. And to me, that as just the central theme seems so dead on. I am curious, before we talk about all of the wonderful research that you all have pulled together into this book, I am just curious to hear a little bit about what set you personally down this path. Like, why this? Why now? Why, why you? Yeah, those are good questions. And I'll try <laughs> to make it uh, brief so that uh, I don't uh, bore the listeners. But I, my journey in thinking deeply about organization and the strategic importance that the organizational setup can make and can have goes back to when I uh, was a young researcher at the Rand Corporation, which is a public policy think tank in Santa Monica. I was living there in the mid-90s. And my first project was for the U.S. Air Force. They, there had just been a bombing of um, some barracks in Saudi Arabia. And this chap called bin Laden mm-hmm. was claiming to be the person that really instigated that. And the project was to find out a little bit about more about him and this loose network of terrorists that he was uh, stitching together, which presented a very different threat and a diff- very different model from the traditional ways in which terrorist groups were organized, which is very bureaucratic. They had PLO, had an office in Tunis, and the Israelis and others could bomb if they wanted to get a filing cabinets and ranks and job descriptions. It was all, it was like a, like the DMV, mm-hmm. but just trafficking in something different. And what uh, Al-Qaeda and other groups that were emerging and becoming really active in the late 90s were doing is organizing in much different ways, much more loosely organized no real center, no real bureaucracy. And this was enabled by information technology and other ways that people could coordinate with one another that didn't really require the traditional uh, way of commanding and controlling. So we ended up writing a book about terrorist groups and how they're becoming networked and how governments and public uh, institutions had to couldn't fight as hierarchies against terrorist networks and they had to create their own networks that spanned silos and, and just 
were much more nimble and, and innovative in architecting a response. So that that kind of planted a seed in my mind. And mm-hmm. then I went over to after five years at Rand, I went to McKinsey, and we did a lot of I did a lot of work around organizational transformations and strategy transformations. And every time I I could, I tried to find partners that were a little bit more creative than the were willing to experiment with different ways of approaching change and thinking deeply about organizational models, not just business models. And that ended up leading me to Gary. I had been a longtime fan of Gary Hamels and McKinsey was collaborating with him back in 2007. And they were looking for people that were willing to work with Gary and see whether something could come out of of a partnership with him. I raised my Mm. hand and the rest is history. Wow, interesting. It's funny, there's some parallels there with with Rodney's background. (laughs) Truly, yeah. The last organization I worked with before the Ready was the McChrystal Group. So I was I was a partner there with Stan McChrystal, um, who I'm sure you're very familiar with. And so we spent a lot of time talking about how it takes a network to defeat a network and what sort of the markers are of an adaptive organization and how common purpose, but without a lot of constraining, served terrorist organizations, but not the U.S. military until there was a lot of change and transformation in JSOC, which led me to Aaron. Yeah, no, it's very interesting. We're big fans of uh, John McChrystal's work, and he was kind enough to endorse the book. And I think we even have a passage or two where we quote him. So it's great uh, to hear that parallel track, uh, Rodney. It is indeed a small world. And something you said jumped out at me that I want to scratch at a little bit, which is, you know, you were looking for other people that were open to doing things differently. And obviously, that is not everybody. I'm just curious, based on the work that you've done since then, and what you all are seeing around this book, why is it that experimentation and challenging the status quo is still such a, a minority game rather than a majority game, given how much the current system is failing us? Yeah, bureaucracy uh, and the traditional way of, of organizing is a, a very difficult beast to defeat. <laughs> and one of the things that, and we, I can give you maybe some you know reasons for why that is, but Maybe I'll share one thing with you, which I found to be really interesting. As we were trying to understand why it is, why is bureaucracy and traditional management models, why are they so resilient and so entrenched, even though they're clearly debilitating? They're clearly creating so much drag and inertia and disempowerment, and it's not good for anybody. It's like suboptimal. Mm-hmm. So why are we still... Stuck. You know, one of the things we looked at where these um, movements for management kind of reform, if you will, that date back to 50 years ago, 60 years ago. There are people talking about the debilitating effects of bureaucracy, Maslow and McGregor and Likert and and Shine, who still alive, thankfully, in, in his you know well in, in his late 90s, and and in. Some of the experiments that they ran in, in plants around the U.S. and overseas, if there are a lot of interesting experiments running in, in Sweden and other parts of Northern Europe, they are all like, if you looked at them through the lenses of what passes as cutting edge today, they're very much cutting edge. In mm-hmm. fact, they were probably bolder than a lot of you know what passes as agile For sure. transformations <laughs> today. And, and somehow, and they proved themselves not only to be feasible, but to be incredibly high High, highly productive. The, we talk in the book about the, the Topeka plant that, of General Foods and how they created this uh, place there where 
you you had self-managing teams, deeply trained, uh, with total transparency around the, the metrics of performance, with upside based on their productivity, and so on. It was like the the best performing plant of, of the journal foods uh, firmament, but then eventually got shut down because the people that were in part that brought this kind of model to that plant left and some other people came on board and said to be running the plant and say, what is this like communist mm-hmm. nonsense of like workers empowered and so on? We're going to we're gonna set things straight. And, and it's just amazing to me that we've been down this road before and which is why we spent the latter part of the book in thinking about like how do we make sure that this time it could be actually different but but i think that little example and that little historical perspective tells you that one of the problems is one of around power right so the ones who do well by bureaucracy and who've mastered the arts of the climbing the ladder. Yeah, mm-hmm. dark arts of climbing the ladder. They're unwilling to give their power away, which is what like is shifting away from bureaucracy has to be about. Like all, all this future of work stuff I see now is interesting because it completely ignores the fact that to have really a future of work, you really do need to think about power relationships very differently. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's not about just... Uh, working in your pajamas from home on Zoom or, <laughs> or or whatever. There's some deep change that needs to happen, and that typically isn't recognized. So it partly threatens the power hierarchy. It's, I think as we say in the book, it's like telling LeBron James, Mr. James, you're great at basketball, but now we want you to play volleyball. How many people? <laughs> I don't think he's going to be very happy with that proposition. So partly it's that. Partly it's, it's a deeply – it's a system, the bureaucracy – and, and it's deeply baked into an organization. So you can't just change one thing and expect the whole organization to, to, to change as a result. You need to change a variety of deeply interrelated processes, uh, relationships, and so on. And so it takes a lot of work. And that's the other problem that you often see. There is this illusion that somehow you change one practice and, you mm-hmm. cha- and, and, and that somehow will, you know, grow to change the organization more broadly. And that typically doesn't happen. You're trying to graft onto the bureaucratic rootstock something that isn't going to grow, right? Because the rootstock itself has a different kind of DNA or different kind of uh, growth dynamic and and, and so on. So it's partly, it's well-defended, it's systemic. And and frankly, uh, it's also hard to change. Like practically speaking, how do you go from A to B? How do you make it? How do you make a? How do you make a shift? Especially if you're not in a existential crisis situation, or yeah, you're not starting from scratch. Which is one of the typical pushbacks you get from laying out some of these examples of companies that are not bureaucratic. Is they might say, "Wait a minute, these companies are either they were born that way, so they have d- different genes." W. Gore and and others were just started by Day people one. who were fed up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So that's one problem. Or the other is, well, companies that are like that didn't used to be, but what happened, what provoked that was an existential crisis. So Nucor very much was in that vein. Handelsbank, in which we talk about, which is a, sure. a, a bank in Northern Europe, the they were in difficult situations. They brought in a leader who said, we need to fundamentally re- reset uh, the way we work. And, and that's what happens. So you know, how do you make this shift happen when... You know, you're not starting from scratch when you're not facing an existential uh, crisis or when you don't have like a philosopher uh, queen or king <laughs> who basically <laughs> can say, this is what we're going to do. And I'm going to, by God, I'm going to be at this company for the ne- next 10 years and I'm, I'm going to see this through. Because those are like, so those are the big challenges. And uh, and that's why I think we've had so many false dawns and why we 
are still suboptimized. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things you touched on that I feel like we often overlook when when we're reading case studies and writing case studies and seeing what is emerging in the future of work is the importance of power literacy in these conversations that fundamentally, whether you're talking about experimentation, grassroots change, retooling practices to make them more democratic or more participatory, you are disrupting a power dynamic that, to your point, is entrenched and very well designed for and incents and directs the people who benefit from it to keep doing so. And those are also the people who generally have some power to block or stop the progress of change or the tide from coming for them. And so there's this loop of disrupting a thing that does not want to be disrupted and to some extent requires some airspace and altitude in order for that disruption to occur. And I just think that piece around power is not talked about enough. And so I'm curious in your work and research, how have you thought about this? If you don't have the philosopher king at the helm um, and you are trying to do this in a more grassroots manner, what is your take on making real and lasting progress? Yeah, that's a big question. <laughs> we often refer to this as the kind of the Gorbachev problem. Mm-hmm. Going back to the end of the Cold War, some of our listeners may not be familiar with this, but I came of age <laughs> at that time. But Gorbachev was the last leader of the Soviet Union. He really wanted to reform the system. Mm-hmm. And I think actually a lot of CEOs and executives we talk to really want to change. Yeah, so yeah. They, it's not like they don't get it. Absolutely. They get it because they, they want to have more resilient organizations. They want to have more innovation in their company and so on. And in a way, so he wanted reform, perestroika, and, and so did the peasants. But then the, the nomenclature, you know, the structure of, of power below Gorbachev wasn't very keen on it. Right. And how do you match the desire that might be at the top with the desire that is dispersed across the bottom? And the good news, I think, is that to, today, more than ever before, you can catalyze that bottom of the organization in a way that you couldn't in the past and even though they're think about like how much power they have, every single person there has probably one hundredth of the power of a of a VP, mm-hmm. but there are more of them. So if you aggregate their little power units together, <laughs> you might get more <laughs> power than those in, the, in who might be not so keen on change. And so one operationally how that works, and we talk a little bit about this in the book, but I, we've been lucky to ex- been able to experiment with companies in this kind of a way where we bring together online, on an online platform, thousands of people to help hack, as we call it, a particular problem. So let's say the CEO of a company says, we need to be more creative and more innovative as a company. I don't know exactly how to do that. And for sure as hell, my leadership team is not going to come up with the answers. We're going to open it up. And first first thing we do is we're going to have an open conversation about what what gets in the way of a truly creative culture in our organization. And and you get you know thousands of around a company-wide survey, or you might get hundreds of comments around the issues. It might be like, we have no resources to experiment, to your point, Aaron, or there's, there's, so, there's no slack in the system. So even if we had the resources, we don't have the time to do that, or the, there's no accountability for innovation. So you, you create a shared view of what the problem is. And then you start to generate ideas on like, how might you 
change the way you're managing, the way you're structured, the way you're organized, the way you run processes such as resource allocation, leadership development, hiring, and so on, uh, direction setting, you name it. You try to generate ideas for how you might subvert like these barriers. And then, and, and that, when you get thousands of people, and I can get into the more practical aspects of how you do that, but, but the general uh, theory of the case, Rodney, to your question is, Getting a critical mass of people talking and proposing alternative models and being and and, and creating this coalition for change that is cross-cutting mm-hmm. and numerous so that you just can't hide. And and you can't do what that the manager at Topeka who went and shut down the, that experiment did because it's not isolated. Mm-hmm. It's widespread and it's public. And so that's a so you what we try to do and what I think you you is the essence is that you need to be able to get the benefits of the commitment, the ingenuity, the creativity of a to- of a bottom up effort, with though the um, rigor and rob- and robustness of of a, of a more institutionalized top down effort without making it top down because mm-hmm. that would defeat the purpose. But that would be it, like creating an open company wide conversation about the future, and and then creating a. a, a, a a, a real movement, internal movement uh, that makes that inescapable. It's funny because in this moment, which we're sort of witnessing the, you know, the last gasp of unions, this is actually what unionization should be about, <laughs> which is like, let's move the organization's way of working forward, not just, wa- you know, ask for better wages. You know, an extra dollar per hour is great, but actually changing the operating system long term will influence everyone's, you know, prosperity far more vastly. I am curious, I, you know, Roddy and I are both aware of the bureaucracy mass index, but given that you just talked about kind of sensing what's wrong and, and you know, zo- zooming in on the challenges, can you talk a little bit about the BMI project, just because it's kind of a neat, it's a neat thing that's out there? Yeah, sure. We thought that to create some more awareness of the problems that bureaucracy creates, you need to be able to measure it. And everybody has a sense that bureaucracy is bad. It creates the red tape associated with it and so on. But thinking about quantifying it the way you would quantify in if the cost of inefficiency and so on is an important goal. Mm-hmm. Because unless you have a, a, a scorecard, it's going to be hard to move people to action. We built a simple instrument that we boiled down for the book down to 10 questions. But it, it tries to quantify the degree to which you perceive the organization to be bureaucratic. And so we have questions around categories such as waste. And there we have indicators like the number of organizational layers and the amount of time you spend on low value added bureaucratic tasks. We have questions around friction. What are the impediments to uh, speedy decision making around insularity? How much time do you spend on internal versus external issues? Autocracy, as we call it, how is your frontline autonomy limited mm-hmm. by rules and, and and processes that just make it difficult for you to you know, exercise judgment, you know, conformity, how likely are unconventional ideas greeted with, with positive feelings or are they mostly dismissed with skepticism or hostility? Mm-hmm. With timidity, to what extent is your organization enabling you to experiment and take risks? And then the last one, which is, I think, one that generates the most uh, vivid responses is politicking. To, to what degree mm. are political behaviors prevalent and how much do they drive personal advancement? 
And here, when we ask that question, especially around people working large organizations, it's like the overall overwhelming majority reckons that politics plays a big role, right, in success within organizations. Now, that may or may not be true, but the fact that people feel that way is pretty damning in its own right. So we built this tool. If you go to humanocracy.com forward slash BMI, you can actually go ahead and take it and benchmark yourself against um, 10,000 responses that we've gathered through research we've done with HBR and people that are now submitting their results after the book has been launched. And you can get you can get a sense of where you are and generate some ideas as we do in the book on like how do you you know get this your BMI score to be more favorable. I love that. And doing large scale transformation work, so often we get asked questions about metrics, like how do you measure the efficacy of this or how do you measure the size of the problem? And so I just think it's super cool and amazing that you all have taken a very um, data oriented approach to at least an organization creating some level of awareness around the bureaucratic load that it's carrying. Yeah. And we've done this as a thought exercise, but we think the numbers are not, I think they're relatively indicative and and true around what the excessive bureaucracy costs the U.S. economy. And the number we arrived at is, you know, three trillions or actually a little more than three trillions. But basically, the way to think about that is to say, how many people are in managerial and administrative roles right now? Mm -hmm. And and then, and it's a fairly big number, millions of people, tens of millions of people. I think 14% of my my memory serves me that, you know, are in that kind of uh, role. And then you look at some of the companies we profile in the book, and you look at how many managers they have, how many layers they have, higher is a Chinese company. They're the largest appliance maker in the world. They have 80,000 people, I think, worldwide. They have 50,000 in China. You know, three layers of management. Handelsbanken, which is a Sweden-based bank, they're the most profitable bank in the industry in Europe. They, 12,000 people, again, three layers of management, including the CEO. So you're like, and, and most companies have seven, eight layers and so on. So you start to think about, okay, what if we actually brought, you know, those people, instead of making them managers and administrators, we find better things for them to do, more productive things for them to do. What would that do? And also, if you look at the person hours spent on processes that most people think are BS, like performance reviews, right. budgeting, strategy, you just add up the hours and you say, okay, what if we just freed up all that time? Then you get to numbers like that like in, the, in the trillions. And this is true at the level of an individual company, but it's also true at the level of an economy. And we don't think it's uh, completely spurious, the, the fact that we've had a productivity slowdown in much of the developed world 20, 30 years ago. And the fact that these trends around more managers, more bureaucrats have actually increased. And one last thing, I just did this analysis today. I was sharing it with, with Gary before I got on the podcast. If you look at the number of people getting MBAs, mm. so that number started ramping up in the 60s and then really came to like an inflection point in the 70s. And so managerial capitalism came to being at that time. And again, coincident with a lot of like bad trends, like sure. the fact that wages for like people who are started not- Started to stagnate then. Yeah, started to stagnate and so on. So I don't think it's a complete coincidence. Mm-mm. Interesting. And it's I'm glad you brought up Hire and, and Handelsbanken because I, I did want to ask, you know, you share many of the same cases in your book that we talk about. You have maybe an even more front row seat to Hire in particular. Why do you think 
higher and others like them are not more famous and more talked about in American business culture. Because I haven't seen them on the cover of Fast Company. And yet they're possibly the most like innovative managerial system in the world at scale right now. So what's what do you think is going on there in the in the sort of traditional institutions that tell stories to us about what's important? Yeah, and it's a good point. I would say that higher, maybe more than others, has been recognized. There have been quite a number of books about higher. You do something. I think Zhang, the the CEO, was one of the top forty leaders, hailed by Fortune. But you're right. More sure. broadly, it doesn't make the fast company list and, and so on. Partly, it may be that it's appliances. So boring. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Washing machines. So much better to talk about a genomics <laughs> company that might be managed like Taylor would, but it's genomics or, or whatever, e- e-commerce or whatever. So partly it's industry bias. Partly it may also be cultural blind spots that we have, which somehow to me not, might be dismissive of examples that come from other countries. Yeah. And then partly it's also that these exemplars or these Vanguard companies are seen almost maybe what is the right analogy? Maybe the like an exotic animal at a mm-hmm. zoo. Oh look! Oh oh yo, they have those. Yeah, look at the feathers. It's very interesting. But they're like that. that that's what they are. They're exotic animals. The uh, Morningstar, the tomato processing company, and mm-hmm. W. Gore, and, and even Sun Hydraulics, they've been on the curriculum of Harvard Business School as the canonical case studies to look at when you look at alternative management models. But again, so it's not like people don't know about them, but I think mostly it's oh interesting. Oh, isn't that isn't that nice? Look how they look look how they do it. Oh, that kind of interesting. So that might be it. And then the other thing is, and I could totally take the point in the case of hire, that they're just you might say they're just like so idiosyncratic. The guy, the Zhang, every time you talk to him, he cites like a different philosopher, Heidegger, Kant, like he talks about incomplete contracts theory, Oliver Hart. It's He's like a, a pretty unique individual. And so you might say very well and good, but what do I do? Which is why we take pains in the book to say, you got to learn from these companies. Mm-hmm. It aren't their practices, but the underlying principles that really inform how they work. And what you need to then do is apply that principle to your organization in your own way, in a way that fits with whatever context you're in. I think it's wrong. It's wrong, really wrong to just, and I see this all the time, especially in agile, and it's really painful. You, you look at a model like Spotify and yeah. the tribe squads, whatever, and now, oh, I got to do what, what Spotify does. And you're just uh, rubber stamp it. And it's just such a, it's just not going to work. It's uh, not going to so, work. You're exactly right because it's just more of the same. It's more of a complex system saying what is a framework solution that we can quote unquote implement that is going to give us adaptability. And it's that is a that is a oxymoron from the get-go. The idea that you're going to create something adaptive from something that is static and copy-pasted from somewhere else. So I think inspiration absolutely, but whole cloth trying to copy somebody else's innovation in your own context Definitely not. And and one of the things, Hire is a, an organization that we draw a lot of inspiration from. One of the things that I often point to when I ask execs to take a look at Hire and read about Hire is just the patience of decades 
to create the kind of change that has happened there. And that if, we, if you're fighting 100 years of bureaucratic debt, it's not going to take you six months to completely upend your organization. And it's taken higher, I, I don't know, Michele, you would know better than I would, tw- 20 years, 25 years that they've mm-hmm. been really on a journey of transformation from creating something that was more efficient to creating something that was more participatory to creating something that was completely microenterprise to now creating something that's more like a a disciplined ecosystem. And I think a lot of leaders also look at something like that and it's easy to dismiss because the idea of that kind of patience is really tough to grapple with. Yeah, no, that is very true. The first experiments, there's a series of experiments that lead higher to what it is right now. In a way, there's something that is time incompressible, mm, right? You just right. have to go through it. And because it is a complex social system, it's it's like saying, oh, look at country X, they're like a dictatorship and they should become democratic. Let's go there and just create democracy. <laughs> right. You know, it's exactly. it's not it's not as easy as that, right? But and I understand the fact that executives may want like to move fast and may want to have a recipe that can apply. That said, I think there are things you can do to make progress happen fairly quickly, to experiment in ways that are meaningful and can really scale fast. Because the alternative is to say, oh, despair. Like, right. it's going to take you 20 years. Good luck on the journey. No, I don't think that's... So higher shows that you need to layer these changes in over time. You've got to be smart about it. You've got to experiment. But you can be bold. You can be radical and practical at the same time. When they started experimenting with self-managing teams, they started with the customer-facing units and, mm-hmm. and the sales units. And that makes sense. They have close to the customer. They have a lot of data and so on. But they did that like with Gusto and and... It made a difference. And then learning from that, they 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 started working on the back-end units, the support groups. And then they started saying, you guys need to talk to each other and contract internally. And that created some pain. And they learned that there are ways to ensure that this contracting can be much less frictionful and, and so on by aligning incentives. And they're like, every time they learn and they try, but they never, they're never half-assed. They try things that can really move the needle, but also don't blow up the company. So I guess... I would say, yes, you need to be patient, but you can, if you commit yourself to it, you can actually make some change happen quickly that is actually going to be visible to you and, and the people working in the organization rapidly. It's, uh, you got to be humble, but you can be, I think, quite ambitious if, and, and there are ways to catalyze change. I think that despair kind of roots in our A-B thinking, mm-hmm. right? Like, I, I don't have it until I'm all the way there to some destination state. And the reality is like, no, you get benefit all, all the along way the along. way. Like, the, every experiment, every year, hire has been a better place to work and a better exactly. performer. So it's not like you, it's not like you have to wait to be arriving at some beautiful Hogwartsian destination to be a wizard. Like, you can just... Yeah play the game. And I think that, you know, again, with complex systems, I love your point about you can't compress time here, because it's like going to someone and being like, you know, how could I grow up my kid faster? I'd really like my kid to be an adult faster. Uh, Well, you can do a little bit of that. But if you try to do too much of that, you'll you'll actually hurt him or her. And so it's actually more about like, let it unfold the way it needs to unfold. And just know that the benefits accrue every day, every week, every year. And, And there's no reason to stop because you're building a continuous uh, capability, which is the whole idea. Yeah. And, you know, part of the time incompressibility 
is not only about what figuring out whether particular practices work or not, or how to tweak them so that you solve some of the issues that might have come up in the experimentation, but it has also to do with the fact that you know you need to experience the change yourself. Right? So the organizations are not just a collection of practices; there are <laughs> all these people working there, and and if you're trying to shift to this new model. People need to live that experience. Yes. You, you can't just say, oh, okay, I like this alternative. I'm going to, you know, from tomorrow, I'm going to come to work and be a different person. It doesn't, it just it doesn't work like that for the institution. It doesn't work like that for the individual. And, you know, that in, in perhaps one of my favorite cases in the book where we spent a lot of time doing direct research is Michelin. I don't know if you uh, like that particular story where, you know, the, the result is still they're still like on their journey. Mm-hmm. They're nowhere near done, but they started in a very, very clever approach where they gave frontline teams working in factories the opportunity over a course of a year to figure out how they can become in their own space, in their own perimeter, more autonomous. And, and, and this was a, a discussion that people were having with each other in the team, as well as with their boss and with the supervisor who was volunteer, wasn't quite sure what this was going to happen how this, where this is going to go, but felt like, okay, let's give it a shot. And the interesting thing is how it was that kind of interaction with the course of a year that not only developed a set of practices that were proven to increase autonomy and, uh, and by the way, productivity in these teams, but also, you know, the interaction give people the, the confidence and the perspective about being operating a different way. And it was only through those interactions that everybody's had, and mindsets shifted. They could have they could have gotten the playbook from a consultant. Say, here's how you're gonna. Here's the agile way of working. Here's what you got to do. You're no longer you're you're no longer a supervisor. You're a scrum master. They could have done and but maybe some people would have bought into that. But what they instead did is they let them like marinate in the uncertainty of figure out a way to evolve personally and as part of the team. And that made it so much more authentic and deep and and lasting. Absolutely. And just everything that we've talked about today is so grounded in experimentation and just so grounded in learning. Like the, I have a very recent example of Tale of Two Teams where one, there is a piece of work to be done to make a decision. And one team has taken the approach of testing over eight weeks and learning and retrospecting and reporting back and sharing results, et cetera. And the other is still, now we're many, many weeks in, still sort of having these stakeholder meetings and putting PowerPoint decks together and they haven't learned anything yet. They're still trying to plan their way out of a decision that they cannot actually make because they don't have enough information while refusing to your point, to have the lived experiment that it would require to get that information. So I think I think so much of this is just about reorienting to stick in the messiness of learning. Yeah, that's so true. And also going away or just not resigning yourself to this notion that it's not up to you to change things. There's almost this, especially mm. when it comes to management practices and management processes, somehow you feel like that's someone else's job, right? And yeah, and that just it just right. blows my mind. Like somehow you you're told, yeah, you should innovate and you know value propositions and business models and whatever. But when it comes to people processes or finance processes or 
the the way the work the team works that's like someone else's job it's it's yeah it's hr or finance it's someone else's job to figure that out and waiting for like those people with all the respect and i know a lot of super progressive people in finance and hr and so i'm a big fan of people in those functions and i know a lot of them are committed to change but waiting for hr finance and so on to change the system um is like waiting for your, I have a 13-year-old uh, daughter waiting for her to just clean her room. It may happen, but I, I wouldn't bet that way, right? You might be waiting. Yeah, I might be waiting quite a bit. It's, and that's the thing, the message we like to give people at the end of the book is you're not helpless. You can change things and you can start where you are. You can't. It's helpful to have a CEO that who's supportive. For sure, it's helpful to have HR that you know who are supportive. You know, there's like you you can experiment. Uh, it's not like it's okay. <laughs> you can experiment with management things, not just products or services. I like that, and actually, that feels like a really good place to draw things to a close, right? Everybody needs to go and be brave and start to get to work, start to take action. So, uh, Mikael, thank you. Uh, thanks very much for joining us. I today. enjoyed it really very fun. much. Thank you so much, Rodney and Aaron. If you all like what you're hearing, please do give us a review. It is really helpful to support us in getting this podcast into the hands of those who are ready to go and make change in their own organizations. And as always, a quick tip of the hat to Taylor Marvin for making us sound good. Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work and lower their BMI. Uh, you can get in touch with us by emailing podcast at the ready.com. And as for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something. Change something.